Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we embrace the glories of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have some news stories, including COVID-19 casts a doubt over flying cars. We have a chat to our good friend Rob about the Mitsubishi Pajero Sport, and we talk to the man most responsible for getting random breath testing going in New South Wales. It had a lot to do with politics, research and government departments. And Brian Smith reprises a subject we've had a look at, deodorising tyres. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. So let's get the program going with the news. The Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries has again called for owners to make sure that they have faulty airbags replaced. Nationwide, 2.6 million vehicles have had faulty Takata airbags replaced, representing 3.6 million airbags. Western Australia, Tasmania, Queensland and South Australia have achieved 95% replacement of faulty airbags. New South Wales and ACT have replaced 94%, Victoria and the Northern Territory 93%. Nearly 220,000 airbags still need to be replaced. The critical Alpha Takata airbags are so dangerous, the FCAI recommends you stop driving your vehicle immediately. In these cases, owners risk the cancellation of their vehicle registration if they fail to act. You can see if your car is one that needs this replacement at the website www.ismyairbagsafe.com.au A few months ago there was a regular stream of stories about exciting futuristic technologies in motoring and transport. Now we live in a different world. COVID-19 has made us rethink what is essential – Technologies like the flying car, once thought of as an essential component of modern cities, may not get off the ground in the near future. Corporate high flyers were keen to be the pioneers. Not long ago, Uber said that Melbourne and three other cities will soon get a demonstration service of flying taxis. Worldwide, 250 companies are working on technologies related to flying cars. Coronavirus means that there are less customers for luxuries and the financial basis of the companies that are trying to elevate their vision is under threat. Boeing and Airbus, for example, were keen, but the airline industry now has other, more pressing concerns. Car sales have plummeted, but car companies are still releasing new models. Volkswagen has just launched its T-Cross in Australia. It's the first German entrant in our compact SUV segment. Volkswagen's other SUVs are the Tiguan, the Tiguan Allspace and the Touareg Rangers. The base model Life costs $28,000 plus on-roads with some good features. The classier style costs $31,000 with additions like adaptive cruise control, blind spot monitor and rear traffic alert. 
It has a little engine, a one-litre three-cylinder with 85 kilowatts of power and 200 newton metres of torque to give it that pulling performance. It has a lot of gears with a seven-speed dual-clutch transmission driving through the front wheels. You can get one at the dealer or order online. SUVs are the biggest segment in our market and image is still important. Audi has just brought in another hero car to its SUV fleet. Audi's latest newcomer is a special model for their top SUV, the Q8. The Q8 has the looks and power that says image and performance and very importantly this is not just a family vehicle. At the heart of the Q850 is a 3 litre V6 diesel engine which is helped by mild hybrid technology. It's mated to an 8-speed automatic linking to all-wheel drive technology. Audi says it has no fewer than 39 driver assistance systems to provide both active and passive safety protection. Prices start at $130,000 plus on-road costs, and you can still add more with an $11,100 premium plus package or full Napa leather package at an extra $8,900. With modern communication methods, quite a lot of people can work at home. But how does this affect a car designer? Julian Thompson is Jaguar's Director of Design, who is currently working from home. Wired Magazine asked him what it's like to be a car designer in lockdown. His biggest frustration is not being able to see or compare designs as full-size three-dimensional clay models. Before the pandemic, before the pandemic, he would hardly ever be found in his office. The majority of his time was wandering around looking at models, talking to people and seeing what's going on. In an organisation like Jaguar Land Rover, there are a lot of people who just stand at a computer screen all day but it is very unnatural for a designer or a modeler to do that, Julian explained. And that has been the news. Hey, Rob, I've been driving the Pajero Sport. Have you had a go at that? I've had a go late last year and when it was launched as well the first time. Not a bad vehicle. Pajero goes back to the sort of traditional four-wheel drive before they became lumped into SUVs. It was the rough and tough one, and this Sport is the smaller version, isn't it, than the bigger, larger, more family, I guess, oriented large Pajero. That's right. This one's based on the Triton. So it's the wagon version of the Triton, the same as the MUX is the wagon version of the D-Max. Let's start with the exterior. Let me say that as soon as I looked at it, it had an element of dimensions of the old style, a little narrower and a little taller. I sat it beside a Hyundai Santa Fe, and the Santa Fe looked like a family wagon, and the Pajero, in very mild senses, and not a necessarily bad sense, but it did look a little more of the older style. And when you got in it, it felt like you were sitting taller but sitting slightly in a narrower sense. I don't know what the dimensions are. That's just a feeling. I think also, too, the Santa Fe has that big bulbous nose, so that makes it look much bigger than it actually is. The Pajero Sport, it is the smallest of those wagon-based versions from the Utes. It's not large by any stretch of the imagination. The engine, it is smaller than the normal Pajero, isn't it? 
It is. It's the same one again out of the Triton, the 2.4-litre turbo. Has 133 kilowatts. I think the normal Pajero has 147 kilowatts. That's horsepower equivalent. But the thing about this is, of course, is it has an eight-speed gearbox. Yes, and that's actually quite good. It, it extracts the best out of the engine. And it's still got that off-road capability. It's got a lot of choices between two-wheel and four-wheel drive, doesn't it? It does. It has. Mitsubishi have a really good system called Super Select. This possesses the new version of the Super Select, which I think they introduced 2019 for the update. And it's also got the ability to have the off-road modes where you choose between gravel, mud, snow, sand, rock. It's, it's a good system. There's a difference. If you've got sand, which is like going through treacle, you need that sort of particular way to respond to it versus something very slippery like snow and, and mud. And By selecting the various modes, it changes everything, really. The amount of wheel slip is the main thing it changes to maximise its performance. Departure angle is not too bad. Breakover is not too bad. It's not the best, but it's, it sits right in the middle of all those sort of wagons. Does it have enough safety features? Yeah, pretty much. With a lot of these vehicles, the continual development of them increases the amount of safety features available. And this one, especially the 2020 update, has, again, a whole pile of new safety features added to it, you know, like the AEB and all that type of stuff, the you know, detection of other vehicles, uh, a lot of those sort of things which people expect these days. And um, sometimes manufacturers are a bit slow in bringing to the fore. 9.1 litres per hundred is its fuel consumption rated figures. Made a little different once you get any car on the road. How did you find it? Is it its drivability, both in the sealed road but also off-road? There's two different factors there. One, off-road, while it has that 430-odd newton metres that peaks at about 2,500 revs, it brings in about 75 or 80% of that, somewhere around about 1,500 revs. So you've got really good low-down usability in that torque, which is great for off-road performance and particularly in areas like sand or snow and mud. Mm. Uh, and also um, on gravel, because you're not using a lot to break traction, if you like. You're keeping traction. On-road, that transfers into, again, easy drivability. I think the interior is a little old-style, not, you know, not badly. It's certainly not creatively elegant, but it's functional. That's the word, functional. For me, it is a little bit small. You feel a little bit cramped. Hmm. But then, as we've talked about before, I'm sort of larger than the average bear. But it is a little bit cramped. But it is, you're right, it is functional. Rear seat space is not too bad. Third row is definitely for the vertically challenged or those that are acrobatic. Contortionist. Contortionist, that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. <laughs> I, I did try to jump in the back of one and got halfway and thought, yeah, no, not doing that. Uh, <laughs> So I think we'd have to get the jaws of life to extract me out of there, I think. So, uh, the other thing that I find a little bit annoying about the Pajero Sport is the, the way the seats fold up in the configuration. It just, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to work that well. It, it, it needs to be a little bit better thought out. You lose a lot of space if you want to, you know, have that flat load area or with you know, both seats down type of stuff. It's got the same rear seat fold forward as the old Pajero has. And while that's quick and easy, it also, you lose a lot of uh, valuable cargo area because of it. What's it worth? Look, they started just under 47000 plus the usual costs for the GLX, and it goes through up to the Exceed, which has got all the bling, 
to a bit over 57000 plus the usual costs. Some of the prices they did at launch, which was earlier in the year, one would have to say that with COVID-19, it's probably got much better. But I think they were doing some pretty good drive-away prices for private buyers. Uh, look, as I've mentioned a couple of times and written a few articles on, if you walk into a dealer now, not only will you get the immediate, if you buy it for business purposes, you get the immediate write-off of the full purchase price of the vehicle, subject to your own tax advice, but the dealers will fall all over themselves to do a deal for you because the, the sales have just plummeted of all cars. They'll do a good deal for you. Drive-away price, no worries. I remember a long time ago, Holden made the cigarette lighter a $36 optional extra. And uh, the PR person said to me, if you pay that $36, you're not good at negotiating. (laughs) That's true. I think you should go into any dealer now thinking they want me more than they've ever wanted me before. Oh, look, absolutely. I think also, too, the moral of that story is, given Holden's demise, maybe they weren't very good at pricing. (laughs) Hey, mate, good to talk to you. Catch up soon. Good to talk to you, David. You're listening to Overdrive. Random breath testing was introduced into New South Wales on December the 17th, 1982. The results have been a dramatic decrease in crashes and fatalities, and it seems obvious now that it was a very positive policy move. But defining how it should operate and overcoming resistance to this measure was not always as straightforward as it might seem. Harry Campcom was the Chief Traffic Engineer for the Department of Motor Transport, the Director of Traffic Authority of New South Wales, the Director of Road Safety for the RTA, and has held important positions such as the President of the Chartered Institute of Transport and the President of the Australian College of Road Safety. Now retired, his work stands as a great legacy to the community in which he served. He joins us on the line now. G'day, Harry. Hi, g'day. Good to hear from you again, David. You led the drive for breath testing in New South Wales. Victoria was ahead of all other states. How important was that to push the New South Wales government? The New South Wales government didn't realise that for quite some time. Throughout the 1970s, Victoria was doing much better than New South Wales in reducing the road road toll. And we, in fact, peaked at over 1,300 fatalities in 1978. Late in uh, around 1979 or two, I arranged for the Traffic Accident Research Unit, which did most of the research on road accidents in New South Wales at the time, and no university is terribly involved like they are these days. I arranged for that unit to move from the Department of Motor Transport to the Traffic Authority and then sent its manager to the Victoria to find out what difference, if any. Firstly, they're having a, a select parliamentary committee on road safety, Secondly, having a closer working arrangement with the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, which was having a big influence uh, on uh, road safety programs. And thirdly, the use of random breath testing, which they introduced initially in 76. Yes, 76. I set the manager down there, and he reported favourably on the parliamentary committee and the involvement of the College of Surgeons. But he found no evidence that random breath testing, which is only operating on a very small scale, was having any significant effect. At the authority, 
we were impressed with how the select committee in Victoria, how much they'd done in depoliticising road safety initiatives, which seemed to be suffering inordinately from party politics in New South Wales. We could all see the value in the committee and what it's done to depoliticise arguments about road safety. And we could see the potential in random breath testing if it was given a a higher profile. The essence of uh, random breath testing is really that it's a uh, make use of what the behavioural scientists called general deterrence strategy, as distinct from specific deterrence. And the latter has long been a strategy of choice by those those responsible for uh, enforcing the law. Most law, that is, not just traffic ones either. That would be the case where you would target not make it random, but rather target outside clubs and pubs and so on. That's right, targeted uh, enforcement, yeah. That's a very technical answer, isn't it? Well, it, it is, but it, it's important to realise what this uh, broader general deterrence strategy had to offer because targeted enforcement or specific deterrence has a focus on catching and punishing offenders, and that appeals to the to the populace at, at large, doesn't it? But general deterrence addresses the, the broader community. It tries to avoid offences while still punishing those who transgress. We knew from the advice we get from our psychologists and behavioural scientists that deterrence is a product of both the risk of getting caught and the consequences if you do get caught. Mm. And it's often the perception of both rather than the realities that lead to decisions by an individual, whether to behave or not. And Victoria's approach had moved some way from that catching and punishing philosophy towards general deterrence. But it wasn't that far, really, and it wasn't being hailed with any silver bullet. We at the authority were most impressed with how the select committee had done things which would have simplified our approaches to new traffic innovations and new safety innovations in the late 80s had they had a a similar approach, had the parliament had a similar approach to uh, demystifying and and, and to depoliticising the issue of road safety. That led eventually to to us, to, to the group of us going down to Victoria. The important thing there, I think, Harry, too, is that at the time there was this uh, bonhomie, good friendship type of attitude to drinking. And I think if you, you would talk about behaviour, we want the baddie to be punished, but we don't think we're the baddie. That's, that's right. That's it precisely. And uh, it was a case then that you were looking at it at a much broader perspective, weren't you? You weren't just looking at it what might tick the boxes of what could be a political campaign. No. No, that's right. What was the attitude to the level of blood alcohol concentration? Oh, there's a lot of, uh, lot of resistance, shall I say, in political circles to the thought of uh, driving that that level down too far. Not enough people were prepared to believe that there was a significant difference in the the, uh, safety that would be achieved uh, between observance of 05 and observance of 08. 
There might have been a few who felt that they might be more likely to be near 08 than they were 05. Yeah. It was at that time, pushing the 05, that Peter Brock made his racing car number 05. That's right. Because he was sending that message that if you're going to do it, you've got to do it seriously. That's right. And that message was what we went into RBT with. The phrase is more common in political circles lately is go hard and go, go quick, go, hard. go early, go hard. So you had to push for that. When it was ultimately brought in, did it have an immediate effect? Oh, it did. It, it, it was much greater than we anticipated. Harry, we've talked, I've taken a lot of your time and I appreciate it greatly. May I say you were one of the great leaders that I looked up to in my growing up in the profession and I appreciate that greatly and, and now I appreciate this opportunity to be able to have a chat with you. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Dad. Let, let me just say, <laughs> maybe I led fairly well, but maybe I was able to because I really did have some some terrific people working with me. Very few of them got the recognition they deserved, although some of them I've, I've been pleased to note are now quite, or over the last 10 years or so, have become quite prominent internationally, particularly in the road safety field rather than the uh, the uh, traffic engineering field, although, of course, uh, Arthur Sims was a standout exception to that. Arthur Sims was the the father of the coordinated traffic signal system, which was eventually sold around the world. You had to defend him. Yeah, we had to watch out. He was uh, he was going to leave the traffic field because uh, people outside of it could see his value elsewhere. Possibly better than people inside it. We had to cook up. Uh, not that so much, but we had to cook up some special arrangements to keep him interested. Because he was the type of person that could have uh, uh, achieved miracles in whatever field he worked in. It's a lovely part of our history, Harry. You played a, a very significant part in it. And again, I thank you very much for your time. Okay, thanks, David. Good talking to you. You're listening to Overdrive. And some quirky news, a little while ago we talked to Alan Zervis from Gay Car Boys about deodorising tyres. The Sumitomo Rubber Company has worked out a way to make rubber not smell like rubber. This is very important in tyres. We had a little bit of a comment about that, but Brian Smith, did you think that this is an important thing? You and I have talked about tyres that make a pattern on the road or are coloured in the past. Is the smell an important point? I look. Do you know what? I I hadn't even thought before seeing this story. I hadn't thought about the the whole question of, of the the smell of rubber being something you wanted to cover. It's part of the the experience, I think. And and it's interesting that um that they want to deodorize it. At the same time, I was looking into um sort of uh, cologne smells um in uh, for men. And, of course, you can get some amazing scents that are really supposed to give you the smell of tobacco, firearms, um, you know, uh, leather, uh, bizarre. So, so while I guess some people are, um, are trying to, to create this kind of earthy outdoor stench almost, to, uh, you know, manly stench, that, um, that people would be concerned that, uh, that the, the tyres need to be... Um, deodorized. It's a very strange thing to me. 
As I mentioned to Alan in the past, Honda had made a scratch and sniff that they put in a magazine as a bit of a marketing ploy, which smelt of burning, burned rubber. Burning rubber, yes, the burnout. That whole notion of what scents would be good, mud. You talked about the sort of four-wheel drive. Would There's the gun smell, so, uh, this is getting perverse, rotting pigs, or you know, wild pigs. I mean, <laughs> yes. what sort of scents do you want? Body odour. Clean yourself and then place a cologne on you that makes you smell like you've done a hard day's work. Sweat. Yes, yes. It depends, doesn't it? What was the research that said people have different odours of sweat and that's a very much some people are attracted to one and not the other and it's to do with sharing the genes around, I believe. So now we're going to have to dab a bit of scent behind, not your ears, but behind the, the mudguard of your car. Well, David, at the same time that um, they're trying to kind of deodorise these tyres, I've just found a men's deodorant or men's uh, cologne that is burnt rubber. So it's, it's the, the smell of fuel, oil, tyres and exhaust. So Sunoco burnt rubber cologne brings the scent of the track to you, David. So, so <laughs> I think if you bought these tyres, you could then buy the cologne and basically put the smell back on them. The thing there is if you were wearing that, you probably wouldn't attract a lady who drives a Prius. <laughs> no, but maybe you're attracting other men to talk <laughs> about donks, you know? It's kind of like the equivalent at the barbecue of lifting the bonnet on your Holden because then all the men that are at the barbecue just wander over quietly <laughs> to look, to <laughs> contemplate the engine, talk about the donk. How, how big's your donk? Yeah. Yeah. What sort of car have you got there, mate? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and so now there'll be a whole sort of fashion parades and only only in sense. Well, you know when you walk through a department store and you go through the place that sells perfume that you are overpowered by a chemical fog that takes you. I wonder whether well, I guess then that means that a very clever person that runs a garage would be able to scent the place up. Oh, yeah, okay. The same way that real estate agents would put the smell of uh, biscuits or, or baking bread, bread yes. to sell the house. Yeah, you'll be able to come in there. A whole another layer of, of uh, car salesman kind of stuff, isn't it? There's hope for us yet. Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Bye, David. That's Brian Smith, and we're talking some quirky news here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Rob Fraser, Brian Smith, Harry Campkin, Jordan Trembath and Paul Just for their great help in putting this program together. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or, of course, you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.
five.